You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Tell me that's not a pretty amazing dynamic. Your guide on the side. Just bring the honesty and the integrity to the game. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. On BYU Radio. BYU Radio. You know, really, it is a tragedy to think that your children may not have hope in the American dream. And one of the things I think we might all want to pay attention to as a parent is... Do you make, are you a very good example of what you want your children to be? You know, are you like the walking role model of the American dream? (laughs) Or are you just chasing your tail, running around, doing what you can to stay alive and to stay afloat? And I don't say that to make you feel guilty. But uh, if you notice, too, there's interesting research just showing that the number of kids getting married is dropping as well, and for a variety of reasons, which we've talked about on the show, um, fewer are getting married, and they're waiting till later to get married, which is actually not a bad idea. According to some research we've uh, talked about recently, the best, uh, healthiest time to get married is 29 to 32, apparently, for the least likely chance of a divorce, 29 to 32 year olds. However, if you go talk to a lot of kids and, and try to find out why they're marrying later, it might simply be because our parents don't seem really happy in their marriage. And do you seem happy in the American dream? You know, after World War II, the dream was just to get back, to have a house, a white picket fence. Remember, it didn't even matter if they were all just track homes next to each other, cookie cuttered out. They just wanted the dream. And I'm afraid it's it's not always there. And it's easy for us to just throw it out because of the darn politicians, you know, they just, yeah. If they were just better. But I found um, in many regards, my hope comes from what happens in the walls of my home. My experience, my children's dreams can be easily um, pushed, expanded, motivated just by me, their father or their mother. We can impact those dreams. So what might really be one of the biggest drivers for why our kids, our teens, feel like the American dream is dissipating is because They don't have the tools. They don't have the support. They don't have the model. They don't have the vision for how it's going to happen. There is some interesting research, too, that states that the the child's income is uh, the best indicator for what will drive your child's income up is their father's income. So what the, the income, the job the father has is the best indicator for the job, the education level that the child will have. Now, that's a tough game when a lot of our children today don't even have fathers in their lives, right? Again, I was raised with parents, divorced. My dad wasn't in my house, but he was in my life, and I'd go to his place of business every single day. And while I was there, that's how, that's how I was basically tended after school. And I would go work, you know, sure, slave labor, sure, illegal in many countries, including our own. But I'd go work, but I learned about the the importance of working. And I even look in my own family with my own kids. 
they're not getting that experience of coming to my office and working every day. And I think that's interesting because as we as we kind of evolve supposedly away from family businesses, you know, where you used to live above your bakery and you run down and run the bakery every morning and you were, you were very connected or you were on the farm and you were part of the farm. As we move away from those kind of lifestyles, um, I think we might be also losing some very simple ways to teach our kids what life's about. So one of the things I guess I would just challenge all of us to do, make sure that you are making the idea of the family or the American dream, make sure you're modeling it. The dream can't just be getting a lot of money and then never seeing your dad or mom. That's not a great dream. And it's hard because you go get one of the best jobs. If you go become a doctor, some of those, you know, the hours as a doctor, they're horrible. And we don't see our mom or our dad. So just think about how you're modeling it. And uh, I don't want it to – I don't want this to be a downer for you, but there are kids. And inside of my home, I can sit down with my family and once a week we try to have a little family meeting, a little family time. And in that meeting, we try to talk about what's going on. And we set some real goals and, you know, you even have to push back and tell everyone we got to work. But just start helping them see that there are opportunities. One other thing I would just challenge all of us to do. And the, one of the fastest ways I've ever found for somebody to catch the vision of the American dream is they got to know what their talents are, what their strengths are. So make sure you're also teaching your children where they are gifted, what their talents are, their gifts are, and be guiding them. A lot of times they just simply need a guide on the side, which is one of the reasons we use that phrase on the show. Most of us just need a guide. So let's guide our kids to a healthier life. Let's model it. Let's show that it can happen Let's educate them so they don't get caught in the spiral that leads them down the drain. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. I am a big uh, proponent of marriage. I think it's incredible. I think it's great. I think it's the one of the great fundamental uh, resources we have in our lives to grow healthier, happier families, healthier, happier uh, people. It's, it's, it's essential to our lives and to a healthy life. And as our researcher just taught us, uh, Dr. Christy Williams, in the lower economic strata of, of our society, all marriages are not created equal, right? So if, if a 19 to 24-year-old person gets pregnant, historically we'd say you got to marry, marry the man. Marry the man, that you know, makes it legit. Now we've got a legitimate thing going on here. And then all of a sudden, we suppose that that would then all of a sudden pull them out of the financial hole. And the problem is it's not the reality they're finding. They're finding that it doesn't necessarily increase or create long-term health for the mother in economic uh, – with economic struggles. So it's, it might be a myth to just automatically push marriage. Now, we should probably be pushing, well, let's not get pregnant, right? That should be pushed. But again, because of whatever reasons and accidents or, you know, things happen that all of a sudden yet you're pregnant, one of the things we probably ought to do is make sure we're evaluating each situation one-on-one. What is the, the, the educational and the mental and the intellectual abilities of the people involved that are going to be parenting? What are the 
uh, financial implications? What What is their earning ability? What educational level have they attained? What resources do they have available to them? It's, these are all important parts of the decision. And there are people that would love to adopt if you want to give the child up. There are parents begging, praying, crying for opportunities to adopt. And so um, marriage may not always be the answer in those situations because, again, who is the father what are the what are the opportunities of the father being able to make it? What is the father's support level at getting out? So, you know, it used to make more sense. And I think it used to make more sense as a solution because we were in a different culture. We were in a different environment where we could just say, you know, you ought to stay married or you ought to get married if you get pregnant. And that made sense in, in smaller town kind of Christian supported cultures and environments because you had a tight-knit group maybe more around you. But in inner-city, difficult, financially strained situations, it doesn't necessarily lead to health. Uh, And if it doesn't lead to health for the mother, it probably won't lead to health for the child. It might lead to abuse and, and other situations. So be careful when we think about our answers from 20, 30 years ago being the only answer today. Um, there are more options and more choices that are healthy um, that, again, there are people that would love to raise your child in a, in a marriage um, if, if that has to happen as well. So let me give you some other things we want to blow up, a few other myths about marriage that we want to support and blow up. Um, remember, I'm a relationship coach. I'm a marriage coach. I, I work with couples every day, thousands a year, teaching them how to strengthen their marriage. I'm not anti-marriage. I am a, I am a realist, though. And um, to think that it's the answer, it, sometimes it's not. I mean, sometimes the answer for everybody is not to go to college either. Sometimes the answer is to get to work, right? Sometimes the answer is, um, you know, there's it needs to be customized to what you're going through. Another myth here, that your true love will automatically know what to say and do to make you happy. I'm going to go with no. I'm going to go with no on that um, because think about it. I don't even know what I truly want to be happy. So how on earth is my wife supposed to know that? We got to be real about what what is a realistic thing that we could be doing and a realistic uh, expectation in my relationship is the, the reality is, is if I want my wife to know something, I need to tell her. If I'm too afraid to tell her, then that's just not going to work. You need to go by based on what we're communicating, what we're sharing with each other. Healthy marriages have the ability to share. Uh, another um, interesting you know, myth is that having kids might bring couples closer together. But <laughs> some of the latest research shows that having children actually increases uh, or decreases marital satisfaction. But it increases family satisfaction. So as a family, you're getting healthier. You like what you're doing. Things are happening. Your family life's getting better because you're having these children. But a lot of times these children are going to take your time away from each other. So the only way to actually make a couple work better after having kids together is to work on it and to put your couple and your marriage relationship first. Thank you.
You put it first and then all of a sudden, bada boom, bada bing, whatever you're focusing on is going to grow. If you focus on your relationship, your marriage, your marriage will get better with children. If you focus only on your children, your marriage will probably suffer. Differences in your marriage will ruin your marriage. Fact is not true. Differences are actually essential to a healthy relationship. Just like, you know, uh, potential I- infections and issues in our environment are better for your Im- for your immunization, for your uh, immunology, your ability for your immune system to be strengthened. You need a resistance, right? You need to have something fighting against you. The same is true in our marriages. Whenever somebody tells me we never fight, I don't think, oh, they're healthy. I immediately think, well, how? Is it that you don't talk? Is it that you don't care? Is it that you have everything exactly in common? Um, that usually doesn't happen. There's a point where you somebody has a different opinion. But at some point, differences don't kill your marriage. Actually, differences give you opportunities to get stronger and better in your marriage. Uh, thank you. And another myth that we've got to blow up. Another myth is that uh, marriage means you're going to have less sex. Less sex in your relationship. But according to researchers at the Kinsey Institute, um, they basically found that couples that were married um, are having more sex and they're actually having better sex as they would rate it than those couples that are single. We kind of think that our single friends that are uh, you know, engaging in sex are so much happier. But uh, 43% said that of the singles um, – Women who were ages between the ages of 25 and 29 reported having uh, uh, fewer uh, sex, uh, ha- having sex fewer times than those of their married friends of the same age. So that's you know pretty interesting, pretty interesting little myth debunked. Um, another uh, interesting thing we talked about a little bit is that happy couples don't argue. The research actually does show that uh, the healthiest couples actually do have a healthy dose of arguments. It's it's not whether you argue or not that makes the difference. It's how you discuss things that is the real key that we need to pay attention to. Uh, many people have a marriage myth belief that being married is the same as cohabitating. Not true, folks. Not true. There is a big dis- d- uh, division between those that are married and living together and those that are cohabitating and living together. And the researcher said, believe it or not, that those that are cohabitating aren't going to last as long as those that are married simply because they have a commitment. People that would choose to cohabitate might already have an aversion to getting married, and that very sign may be meaning they're less uh, willing to commit. Bing! There you go, folks. Just a few of the myths about marriage and children uh, and communication debunked for you. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll take a break. Our goal is to help you love stronger. I think we accomplished it. We'll be right back. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends. You know, the way we navigate our inner world, our everyday thoughts, emotions, and self-stories is the single most important determinant of our life's success. It drives our actions, careers, relationships, happiness, health, everything. So what happens when we don't feel successful in this area? 
Dr. Susan David, a renowned psychologist and expert on emotions and happiness and achievement, draws on her more than 20 years of research to show that emotionally agile people are not immune to the stresses and setbacks. She's here today to talk with us a little bit about her book, Emotional Agility, Get Unstuck, Embrace Change, and Thrive in Work Life. Dr. Susan David, thank you so much for being with us. And thank you so much for having me. This is uh, such an important topic. I, In my uh, coaching program and, and practice, I see th- this is the thing that sets every other human apart, it seems like, the ability to really be strong and, and able to understand and recognize and manage our emotions. Absolutely. As you say in the introduction, the way we navigate our feelings, and we have so many thousands of thoughts, emotions, and stories every day, And these really drive what we put our hands up for, what we don't, the careers we go into, what we feel we can do and can't do, and how we parent our relationships. It really drives everything. And I set out when I was writing Emotional Agility to really answer this key question, which is, what does it take internally, the way we navigate our internal worlds, that enables us then to thrive externally? Mm. Is that so emotional agility, how, how do you define it? emotional agility as the ability to be with our inner world, our thoughts, emotions, and our stories in a way that is uh, curious so that we aren't just ignoring them. We, we're curious about it. We're also able to be compassionate with ourselves. And at the same time, we are able to uh, have behaviors that align with our intentions and values. In other words, it's not your thought or emotional story I shouldn't apply for that job or I'm just going to walk out the room when my husband starts in on the finances. Uh-huh. Um, it's not the thought, emotional story that drives our behavior. It's rather how we want to be in the world, our values and our intentions. So emotional agility is the ability to be with your internal world in an effective way and still to make choices that are aligned with who you want to be in that, the world. That is so critical, isn't it? Because it seems like that might, is it the lack of being aligned to our values and our core principles? Is that what sets us off and almost creates the dissonance that that then vibrates the rest of the being? Well, that's a really interesting question. I often say when I'm working with individuals, both in organizational and other contexts, that often when people are experiencing sadness or guilt or frustration, often that signal, that emotional signal is a sense of dissonance between I'm moving away from something that is of value to me. I'm moving away from my values. Hmm. And, you know, oftentimes what will happen is we live in a world where so much of our messaging is just be positive, just think positive. (laughs) And so often what can happen is people can push those emotions and thoughts aside in the service of simply trying to be happy. And what happens in that context is people aren't actually learning from their thoughts, emotions, and stories. So, for example, um, someone who is feeling really depressed, I, as a psychologist, have never met anyone who is depressed who isn't looking for a better way to be in the world. Um, social anxiety often is around our 
connection or our sense of do we belong. And then even in the workplace, someone who gets really frustrated because they feel that their credit has been stolen or their ideas have been stolen, uh, that emotion is often a signal to that individual that they care about fairness and equity. So when we just shut our emotions off or push them aside, what we do is we often are stopping ourselves from being able to learn Hmm. from our emotions and thoughts about what it is that is of value to us. And therefore, we aren't really able to recalibrate our actions and to make changes that are necessary in our lives. So the the agility comes from um, not just feeling the emotion and then trying to avoid it the rest of the day. The agility comes from having an emotion, but then going inward and trying to figure out what this emotion is teaching us, what, what it's trying to help us understand. Absolutely. So there are very interesting studies that show on average people have about 16,000 spoken thoughts every single day. And those thoughts often around and contextualize about their emotions. Hmm. Now, if you think about how many more thousands we have every single day, we're not going to go to every single one of those because many of our emotions are just, you know, are transient. Um, And so the aspect of emotional agility and the agility part of it is the idea, yes, that we're not going to simply ignore stuff that's inside us that is difficult or our difficult experiences or our stories, our narratives. We are going to enter into a place into ourselves that feels honest and connected and authentic with who we are. And then we're going to try and learn from them. And that's not the same as either ignoring emotions or, on the, on the other hand, ruminating. Like, we're not, uh, what I'm not proposing here is that people dwell on right. and overanalyze their emotion. But simply, for example, being able to, you know, if you someone who is coming home from work and is saying, you know, I'm stressed, I'm stressed, I'm stressed, and every single day it's just, I'm stressed. There's a world of difference between being stressed and upset or stressed and disappointed, stressed and angry, stressed and I thought my career would be more than it is. And so it's only when we are able to really get accurate about what it is that we are feeling. Uh, This is an area in psychology called emotion granularity, this idea that even when the feelings are uncomfortable, but we're able to go to them and notice them and label them that we are then able to move forward effectively. And there's a body of research that shows that when we are able to notice our emotions in this way, it actually impacts on our goal setting and intentionality and ability to actually then make change. Wow. So it's it's um, it's more than – it's not – some would just say just be positive and just paint over the issue. But you're saying – go into the emotion and the agility, and we learn this in your book, it would be to go in, get deeper, look at the thoughts behind it, uh, go into the emotional granularity, notice it, label it, um, and, and, uh, and, and then by labeling it, we turn it into something else, I guess. Correct. A core idea of emotional agility is the idea that emotions and thoughts often contain beacons to things that we care about in the world. Um, And so that they're useful, they're important, they exist in a way that is functional and helpful for us as human beings. And that 
that idea doesn't then mean that you feel an emotion and you are right. Really what I'm suggesting in emotional agility is that emotions are data, but they are not directions. Thoughts are data, but they're not directions. So we always want to be asking ourselves, you know, I'm careful and caring and compassionate about my inner world, but who's in charge here, the thinker or the thought? Mm. Who is in charge, the emotion or me, the feeler of the emotion? Um, who's in charge here, the story that says I may as well not apply for a job? Or me, the person who has many stories? And I yeah, absolutely believe and the research supports the idea that these are fundamental skills. I think that this idea that we are promoting in our culture, which is that we should just be happy all the time, yeah. is actually paradoxically undercutting our resilience. If you, for example, look at the you know, very, very frightening statistic that the World Health Organization predicts that by 2030, depression will be the leading cause of disability globally. Hmm. Not heart disease, not cancer, depression. Um, we really need to, I think, as human beings, and I don't think we do well with this in society, you know, appreciate that, that life is fragile and that we are well until we're not. We're with people who we love until we aren't. And unless as we as individuals are able to actually accommodate the reality of our lives instead of just trying to be happy all the time, I think we undercut our resilience. And by the same token, I think that our, you know, what is often spoken about as overparenting, uh, overparenting can also be expressed in trying to protect our children from difficult emotions and difficult experiences. Mm. And I think that overparenting actually hinders our children's ability to be resilient. To yeah, they're less they're less able to handle it themselves. Correct, correct. Because there's always someone coming in and saving them from that, and so they don't learn over time that emotions pass. They don't learn that things that they can do can impact on their emotions and, and thoughts. And so there's always a sense when you've had someone protect you from something that the thing that they're protecting you from is somehow scary. Mm. So you, you don't develop your own competence in that area. Yeah, and that, yeah. then all of a sudden you don't understand your emotions. You've never had to deal with your emotions, deal with your thoughts, deal with the thinking behind it. We'll take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Susan David. She's the author of the book Emotional Agility, Get Unstuck, Embrace Change, and Thrive in Work Life. She's also a psychologist on the faculty of Harvard Medical School. Stick with us, folks. We're going to increase emotional agility in just a minute. Feelings. Nothing more than feelings. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. On the phone with us is Dr. Susan uh, David. She is the author of the book Emotional Agility. Get Unstuck, Embrace Change, and Thrive in Work Life. She is a psychologist on the faculty of Harvard Medical School and co-founder and co-director of the Institute of Coaching at McLean Hospital. Um, And we're honored again to have you, Dr. David. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. As we talk about the um, 
this kind of happiness mentality that everybody seems to be pushing out there. Um, happiness is it seems like it's usually just going to be a byproduct of emotional agility, as you've described it. It's it's a it's an outcome. It, it shouldn't necessarily be the goal. Right. Absolutely. One of the things that I describe in emotional agility is the idea that when we open a newspaper, when we read on the Internet, it seems like we are flooded with encouragement about how to be happy. And what can often happen is we then start setting up this idea that we need to be happy, that happiness is a goal, that it's an entitlement, that it's something that we should really aspire to. What's really fascinating is that people who set up happiness, the idea of being happy as a goal, actually over time paradoxically tend to become more unhappy. Uh. So there's this idea in psychology which is called amplification, the idea that when you are feeling miserable about something, you're frustrated in something that's going on in your job or in a relationship, and you push those emotions and thoughts aside, often in the service of happiness, that those thoughts and emotions actually um, come back. So there's fascinating experiments showing that when people are asked to not think about something, you know, not think about your anger, not Mm -hmm. think about the chocolate cake that you want because you're trying to lose weight, we know that there is this paradoxical effect where the very thing that we're trying to ignore or avoid actually boomerangs back. Um, So there's there's firstly work within psychology that shows that this idea of trying to be happy and pushing other things aside doesn't work simply in the way that we wired. Um, But there are other problems with the focusing on happiness. Uh, Often what it does is it sets up expectations of how things should be. And often expectations are disappointments waiting to happen when we have an expectation that everything is going to go beautifully over Thanksgiving dinner and we set this very, very high bar of what we want, then we're often disappointed. So what's really important, and and just to be clear, I'm not anti-happiness. I'm a fairly happy person. (laughs) I've written a whole other textbook on happiness. But what's really fascinating is that happiness doesn't come about through pursuing happiness. Happiness rather comes about through pursuing activities and actions that are of intrinsic interest and value to us. So when we are moving in a way, say in the way we parent or in our jobs or in our relationships, in a way that is congruent with our values, it's at that point that we start feeling happier. Um, but it is exactly, as you say, a byproduct rather than a goal. Well, that's great insight. And because it's so easy to just, even when someone's down and you just try to make them happy and just be happy, think of something else, we try to distract them. Talk to us about what what we could do when we're, when we're suffering through some of these emotions of life, just normal parts of life, but we're feeling a little more anxious, we're feeling depressed, we're worried about something, we feel like we're inadequate. What could we do to effectively manage the emotion and the thinking behind it? So the first thing that I would say is we need to actually do what is the least obvious and actually most simple thing, which is so often, and again, I think it is related to a lot of this messaging that we have around us, 
we will so often question ourselves. Um, I shouldn't be happy. Why am I so unhappy? I'm miserable in my job, but at least I've got a job. And so what we land up doing when we have this is we, in psychology, we have what we call type A thoughts and or type one thoughts and type two thoughts. Type one thoughts and emotions are when you just have the emotion. You're sad or you're angry or you're frustrated or you feel inadequate. Type two is when you start layering extra thoughts and emotions in about your thoughts and emotions. Mm. So I'm sad. I shouldn't be so sad. I'm sad that I'm sad. <laughs> um, why am I anxious? I shouldn't be so anxious. Why am I having this thought? So the first way that we can actually navigate this is to quite literally end any struggle that we have within ourselves as to whether we should or shouldn't have a particular thought and emotion um, by dropping the rope. And what I mean by this is ending any struggle around whether a thought should or shouldn't be, an emotion should or shouldn't be. It just is. <laughs> you know, it just is. Yeah. And what's really fascinating with this is when we look at, for example, people trying to make real changes in their life. So, for example, trying to give up smoking or trying to lose weight. There's a you know, wonderful new body of research showing that these kind of cravings, so say you're trying to give up smoking or you're trying to be healthier, that the cravings that you experience every day are, are normal. Um, and so when people have an approach towards themselves where they say, gee, I'm, I'm having a craving about this thing and it's a normal craving, as opposed to trying to push it aside or not think about it, that those individuals are actually more successful in mm. making the changes that they're trying to make. So really, I think the first part of emotional agility is what I call in the book, emotional agility showing up. And that is being able to just be with yourself without struggle in a way that is compassionate and kind. Because one of the absolute uh, key fundamentals of any type of human change is that acceptance, accepting where we are right now is the key building block to making any change. So mm. acceptance paradoxically is the fundamental marker of your ability to then go and make changes. In fact, so that, that that's what happens in yes. these groups, right? Like AA and other groups, that there becomes this this compassionate acceptance about their condition. Yeah, and we again, we live in a world where it's almost this idea that we need to be living a constant Iron Man or Iron Woman marathon. Right. That we, you know, we shouldn't be kind to ourselves because when we're kind to ourselves and when we face into ourselves in this way, that somehow it symbolizes that we are weak or that we're um, going easy on ourselves or that we're lazy. Whereas actually, when we do prospective studies and we look at people who are going through difficult transitions, you know, people who are going through divorce or people who are going through job loss, individuals who are more compassionate towards themselves, that doesn't mean that they don't like the things that they don't like. It's just that they, they move into a space in themselves where they recognize what they've done and they are gentle with that. That those individuals, number one, are actually more honest 
and more able to make effective change. Number two, they get through these transitions better. So it almost seems like this idea around acceptance and self-compassion gives you your edge rather than taking it away. Right. You can almost hear people thinking, yeah, no, don't do that because that's just going to make you fat and lazy. Don't be too accepting of yourself. Keep the pressure on. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, what's fascinating is even when you look at studies with recidivism and people who are in jail for crimes and you look at do people have self-compassion around what it is that they've done. So they've still done the thing that they've done wrong. They're not, they're not pretending that they haven't. Right. But are they kind of kind towards themselves and acknowledging of their guilt? Or do they experience shame and a lack of self-compassion? And what's fascinating is that individuals who lack self-compassion and who are shameful, so they, they're not able to see what they've done as a behavior, but rather that it is them 100% that they are bad, that they are to be shamed, that those individuals actually land up going out and not being rehabilitated. So shame and a lack of self-compassion are predictors of more crime rather than less. And the opposite, that people who are more compassionate, they acknowledge their guilt they're then able to move into a space where they repay their crime, but they are able to move forward productively. Mm. That is, I mean, you can you can see it. You can understand. I think all of us have felt that uh, shame where we beat ourselves up instead of uh, accepting and showing self-compassion. Are there things we can do as parents with our own children to make sure that we're not kind of inducing and uh, and and creating this thought process in our children? So absolutely, and I've got a whole chapter in Emotional Agility where I describe some of these uh, core ideas as well as very practical strategies. The first thing that I would say is that just following on our conversation that we've just had, which is your child child will mess up. You know, there are going to be things that your child does as we all do because we are all humans that we do that are incorrect. And it's really important when we're giving feedback to children that we give feedback about behavior rather than feedback that is tied into the individual. So, for example, I am disappointed that you did that particular thing is feedback about the behavior. I am disappointed in you is starting to develop this shame. Mm. So it's basically starting to tie the child's behavior into who they are. And that actually, over the longer term, stops them from being able to recalibrate and be more effective around their behaviors. Another thing that I talk about in the book is that often with the best of intentions, when our children come home from school, they're sad, they're worried, they're anxious, no one would play with me. They have you know, very real worries and real concerns often with very good intentions, and I talk about my own you know, failures in a sense, in, yeah. in a way, in the book, um, because I'm by no means perfect at this. Um, often what we'll do is we will almost feel uncomfortable with our child's discomfort, with our child's sadness, 
And so we will jump in and we will try to make things right. Mm. You know, I know people wouldn't play with you. I'll play with you. Let's go bake cupcakes. Yeah. Um, and so we do this with very good intention. But really what we know is that even at the age of two and three years old, children have the capacity to start developing the ability to label emotions, to recognize that emotions are transient, that they pass, they're not going to hang around forever, and that they're things that they can do. So a very, very important aspect of helping children to develop emotional agility is to not promote the idea that there are wrong or right emotions, um, but just that your emotions just are, are, and let's feel them and let's label them, and then yeah. what do we want to do about them, and I... help the child to help himself or herself. And I love that. And that's one of the great learnings I took out of it was labeling it, putting a name on it. And that that actually puts you in a different place in relation to your emotion as well. Dr. Susan David, thank you so much for your great insights and work. Everybody go check out the book, Emotional Agility, Get Unstuck, Embrace Change, and Thrive in Work Life. Power, folks, understanding your emotion and uh, not not just jumping around them. We'll be back. Continue the discussion. Stick with us. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, did all of those summer vacations run your savings dry? Are you dreading this season because you know it means penny-pinching to save up for the holidays? America has the largest economy and is one of the richest countries in the world. So why do so many Americans find themselves in debt and struggling to make ends meet, even if they have pretty well-paying jobs? Well, our producer, Leanna Tan, is on it, and she's going to give us some financial advice from her perspective and teach us five ways we can start saving more and living happier. can't believe you like money, too. We should hang out. I've listened to my friends, coworkers, and fellow Americans complain about empty wallets. I was appalled to read that usgovernmentdebt.us says America will be $19.3 trillion in debt by the end of the year. I ain't got no money. Um, while national debt isn't necessarily the same as the debt in your own home, I think it does reflect how Americans live their lives. I'm saving for a speedboat. It seems like people these days don't know how to save or how to value money. We hold the world ransom for... One million dollars. Don't you think we should maybe ask for more than a million dollars? So here are five ways you can save money and start affording happiness. Be happy with simple things. You know what they say, happiness is a journey, not a destination. All right! Enjoy each moment and each possession for what it is. If you're constantly waiting for something bigger or something better or something newer, you will always be living an unattainable life. Always running and never catching up. So maybe you do only have a few carrot sticks and a tuna sandwich for lunch. Watch up, Doc. But at least it doesn't have the calories of a four-course meal. And your canned tuna probably tastes the same and actually probably is the same as the tuna they use in that expensive cafe you're foregoing. Two! Here, have a dollar. In fact, no, brother man, here, have two. Two dollars means a snack for me, but it means a big deal to you. I suggest that even for just a day or a week, Try living like you don't have any money at all. You're kidding me. That means that you can't go to the movies on the weekend. No! And you can't go to the vending machine for a snack. I don't think I like your attitude, vending machine. I know. It sounds hard. 
but you'll realize how many things around you actually don't cost any money and how many resources you and your community already have. If it'll beat anyone's advertised price, or your mattress is free! You probably tend to spend just because you can, not because you need to. We live in a first world country, people. You don't have to go foraging for food or water. And that's really all you need to last you throughout the week. Three! Don't waste. Reuse and recycle. Recycle, reduce, reuse. Close the loop. We can close the loop really need that $300 pair of designer jeans? What's the difference between that and the $15 pair at your local thrift store? The fashion industry has been behind every major political assassination over the last 200 years. Maybe a small stitching on the back pocket. Hmm, have an empty bedazzled pocket or a full off-brand pocket? And before you throw something out, just ask yourself if you can make use of it again or if it's worth spending the money to replace it if you don't. We can make a difference. Ideas aren't good or bad. They're just free! Like your dinner leftovers. Those can definitely be used again the next day for lunch. Milk was a bad choice. It pains me to see that so many people just empty a pot of pasta in the garbage can because they don't have room in the fridge. Did you know a recent Bloomberg article said that America wastes $160 billion in food every year? Ugh! So painful. Find a worthy cause or activity to put your money into. Are you serious right now? Dude, this is for charity. Whether that means donating to a charity, a church, or your kid's local soccer team. You'll be more driven to save if it's not just for yourself. Then every time you pull out your wallet to splurge on more scrapbook supplies or throw pillows, you'll think of the poor orphan children or the kid down the block who just might not get his soccer uniform. guilt it's a great spending referee find a job you enjoy going to love this place a lot of people give up those family vacations working less hours or working their dream job because they can't afford it it's a really sad life when you can't afford happiness You promised the children some real time here i just got here what are you talking about if you merely go to work to get that paycheck Life will be dismal for at least eight hours of your day every day. But if you find a job you like, then it's more like you're filling your day with a hobby, and then you're pleasantly surprised to get money on top of that. Well, maybe you could come work for me. Really? Sure, I guess we could use a janitor. This will help you rely less on money and learn that it doesn't control your life. So, my advice is to fill your life with things that make you happy, especially in situations where you have complete control. And then you won't notice as much when money comes and goes, and frankly, you won't care. Then you can start using money as a tool, rather than have it control you and consume your home and your country. So, don't worry, even if the government does go up in flames, no matter where you live or what you own, you can be happy. So enjoy your carrot sticks, and don't forget Billy down the street who just might not get his soccer uniform. Well, I'm Liana Tan, and that's my little tangent. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Just bring the honesty and the integrity to the game. Your guide on the side. If we're not wholeheartedly in our relationship, then we probably are always looking for exit strategies. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Folks, we got to learn to be a, a media critic, right? We got to know what's what's real, what's not who we should trust we cannot equate 
a media personality to a, a you know a strong source of knowledge about any topic really right wouldn't you rather have a researcher wouldn't you really rather have somebody that's studied it that maybe doesn't have a that's maybe not making money to be a pitch person it's hard it's it's really hard to to know who to trust and what to trust and you know there's that's our responsibility as parents is we can step in and start to create just conversations, more and more conversations. And uh, what I'm finding with my family is it doesn't – you don't have to make this a big formal thing. It's just constant. Keep bringing it up every time you get a chance. Every time you see a story on the news, use the story as a catalyst to talk. These discussions, one by one, Your kids are listening. They're hearing it. They know what's going on. When you see that, do you really think that's happening? That's – do you think that that person really uses that? Do you think they really look like that? Anyway, a lot of this is just – it's hard. I mean parenting's hard enough. Now all of a sudden I've got a – I've got my children looking at a screen eight, nine hours a day. That's not even including television, right? That's just – Computers, cell phones, iPads, seven to eight, nine hours a day. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. You know, one of the biggest victims of this new age of information and uh, technology is going to be the relationship, right? And as a relationship coach, uh, I do believe it's something we need to pay close attention to. So it will be today's topic of the coach's corner. How do we how do we close the closeness gap? Many people are struggling um, feeling close to another person. They, they they feel lonely personally, and uh, you know interpersonally they feel like they just aren't close to their partner to their kids. Um, it's hard when everyone's sitting looking at their phones and no one's connecting and talking, you might start to feel like you don't matter, that you are irrelevant. And um, there's – it is a plague quite honestly and, and yet it's something that we, we can fix. But like our good guest Andrew Merle was just saying, you might need to make some choices like the choice to put the phone away. And that's that's easier said, and I say it, and every time I say it, I notice that I, I still have a hard time putting my phone away because the phone makes it so I don't need to be vulnerable. I don't need to talk to anybody. I'm tired. Just once I pull it out, everyone kind of leaves me alone. But some of that then fosters this sense of loneliness. And uh, one of the things – there's a great book out there that I would highly recommend um, uh, called Stop Being Lonely. And it's um, uh, the Kira, Kira somebody. Let me find, look up her name. But it's in the book. Um, one of the ideas behind the concept of stop being lonely is what we really need to do is start to feel more um, more of an ability to get to understand the people around us. We really have to kind of step in 
and get uh, to understand who we are married to, who we are living with. Uh, Kira Asatryan is the author of the book, Stop Being Lonely, Three Simple Steps to Developing Close Relationships and Deep – or Close Friendships and Deep Relationships. But one of the interesting things she teaches is uh, don't just assume you understand the person you're with. And I did this yesterday with a, with a couple where I had them identify on a list of positive traits and negative traits um, what are their top you know eight you know positive ways that they see themselves and what are some of the negative ways they see themselves that that they in their in their head in their heart of hearts they really they feel this way uh, they they and and basically this couple had been arguing about a situation. And um, we did this activity, and then I had them turn to each other and talk about what they found. One person's uh, – one of his top traits was loyalty. Another person's top trait, the female's top trait, was um, just just uh, com- compassion and, um, you know, and, and just a sense of compassion for others. And what ends up happening is uh, the, the male's negative trait was stubbornness and the female's negative trait was confusion. So what ends up happening in their relationship is a lot of times the the wife is compassionately serving her children while the husband is lonely and loyal and wondering why she isn't more loyal to him. And then they fight. And what was amazing is is I had them start identifying how they both see themselves and how their partner sees themselves. It changes the entire discussion. He's not being stubborn because he hates her. He's being stubborn because that's just his weakness. And she doesn't get confused about not loving him or loving the kids. I mean, that confusion is not coming because she doesn't love him. It's coming because she's so compassionate. She's going to always take care of the one that's in the need. Well, then he has to create a need for her to be able to be compassionate. The power of if you want to be um, more connected to others is you've got to understand where they're coming from, from their frame of reference. If they're trying to do something and they want loyalty, you need to understand that. If they want more compassion, you need to understand that. Understanding somebody is the antidote to creating a closer relationship. So a little challenge for you. Put down the phones. Go try to understand each other. Make sense? You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. There's a bias, right? There's an inherent bias that we all have. And what it then does is it it actually impacts our selection process, right? So if I am biased against somebody and I, you know, I don't like Joe Blow from my office and I think he's just out to get me, then I'm not going to select all of the data that I notice about Joe Blow, just the data that supports my hypothesis that he's a jerk, that he's out to get me. I may not notice that he gives, you know, that he buys an extra lunch for somebody. I may not notice that. Or that he even invited me to his son's wedding. May not notice that. I only notice that he's out to get me. So it's about bias. Everybody on earth has it. And what uh, our great guest uh, was talking to us about is that Scientifically, we are going to make our argument not based on fact. We're going to first take our bias, our position, and then we're going to go look for the data that supports it. And the neat thing about data is you can make it say whatever you want it to say. And we watch the spinsters. And more importantly, notice you. Notice yourself. 
What do you believe, and how does your bias impact the data you're choosing and the candidates you're favoring? You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. We thought that we would have, you know, a lot of time to focus. With all this technology, it would buy us more time, right? More time to be with the people we love, more time to be attentive and in tune. And in reality, what ends up happening is not even close. We still don't have time. And so, and what I'm talking about is a simple idea of being in love, right? So when somebody thinks about being in love, they always think of the love part. Like the, the love is the, is the important part. You got to, as long as you have the love part, life is going to be great. But what I'm going to be focusing on is not the love part, but the in part. You know, the in, you got to be in love. It's kind of like being in debt. It's not the debt. It's being in the debt. That's the problem. When you're inundated in the debt, ugh, it's the problem. But if we could be inundated in the love, then life would be great. We're just overwhelmed and so full of love for each other. So when we talk about it, I'm going to get into four different things to make sure that we get in. And our nature, really, uh, we've been told, is a great way to get in. And part of that is because it just automatically probably takes you to a whole different level of in vibration of life, I guess, because normally we're just kind of vibrating off of our screens and we're just feeling all of this intensity. In our marriages, in our relationships, four keys to get in the relationship. Number one, you got to tune into your partner. I've been married 25 years in a couple of days, and um, here's the deal. If I don't listen to my partner, if I don't pay attention to my partner, then I do not have a clue what her needs are, her wants are. You have got to learn, all of us have got to learn to tune in to what's really going on with our spouse. What are they really thinking? By the way, like you remember the old radio tuner where you had to tune in and dial in the radio? You might have to adjust it depending on where you were. But the minute you tuned in, it would eliminate a lot of the static. It would get rid of some of the interference. We've got to figure out and be present enough with our spouses to be able to tune into what they're really trying to say. And after 25 years, we should be really good at it, right? Well, only if you've been in. If you haven't been in, then you're not going to be great at being able to dial into what your partner's saying. Some solutions for that are very simply find ways to clarify what your partner is saying. Don't assume you know what they mean because they're saying certain words. Ask them, what do you mean by that? When you say that, I don't know. I'm worried about today. It's not going to go so well. Don't assume you know exactly what that means and don't just like answer it for them. What do you mean? What are you worried about? And let them explain more. Spend more time actually looking at your partner. You know, it's easier to tune into something that you're looking at, right? It might be easier to tune into somebody that you're listening to. So we can tune in with our eyes. We can tune in with our ears. We can tune in with our whole heart. We got to tune into our partner. Another rule, allow your partner in. One of the biggest complaints I hear from par- uh, in marriage uh, coaching and relationship coaching is, I don't even feel like I know my husband. He doesn't even let me into his world. She asks you how your day is. You're like, fine, my day's fine. No more need to discuss it. Do you let your spouse in? Do they share what's really in their heart and in their mind? Do they feel safe enough to share it? Because if they don't feel safe enough to share it, they're not going to share it. Are you a, a safe spouse or will, you know, you get laughed at? We've got to allow our partners into our fears, our beliefs, our concerns. And that means you've got to be able to hear it. 
there was some interesting research done of women that say they want to hear what's going on in their husband's heart, what they're thinking in their mind. And as soon as the husband shares it, almost inevitably, the wife's like, oh, I can't believe you're thinking that. You always think that. I know. My bad. If you want your partner to share more, you've got to be able to handle what they bring, and you've also got to be able to make it safe. Another rule is stay more involved in each other's lives. A complaint I hear all of the time is it doesn't seem like my partner's even into the family. They're not even paying attention. They're never involved, which means, dads, you need to help more. Be there for homework. Help your kids do their assignments. Run the carpools more. Pick up the team. Drive the team. Be involved. Also, can I just suggest watch out for how we do our distribution of chores and of um, division of labor. You will make these divisions when you're young, maybe naive. The wife does everything on the inside of the house. The husband does everything on the outside of the house. Be careful, ladies, because there's because we have lighting and technology inside the house. You can end up working all night till midnight, but we can only mow the lawn until it's dusk. If you want a fair and equal division of labor, we're going to have to learn to talk about it. And then last but not least, you got to touch. you got to be in touch with each other. If you remember, that's where a lot of the chemicals started in the first place. So make sure you're touching. Uh, and you can touch, you know, in non-sexual ways. You can hold hands. You can hug. You can kiss in front of the kids and drive them crazy. That's the reason we're in love, right? Keep in touch. That's one of the goals. Stay involved. Allow your partner in and tune in to your partner. That's the way you stay in love. Interesting stuff, folks. Hoping to help you see the good in the world. We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, the most common rule for exercise ever told is that if a person gets 30 minutes of physical activity each day, that person will live a healthier life. Yet today, the new trend sees people, men, women, moms, dads, finding every time, every minute they get, they try to hit the gym. The more we exercise, the healthier we will be, right? Well, that may not always be the case. Andrea Ovard, a clinical dietitian at the University of Utah Hospital in the cardiac ICU and medical units, is here today to discuss the problems that come with exercising too much and how we can find the right balance between too little and too much. Andrea Ovard, thanks for being with us again. Yeah, thanks for having me again. It's good to be on the show. This is a problem, Andrea, that I have never um, had. I think that is true for most people. I think very few people have the problem of exercising too much. Who? Yeah, who exercises too much? (laughs) Man, I think I just... Well, no, you know what? Here's the problem. When When I don't exercise... And then I do exercise, like I'll go play tennis and I'll, I'll pull. I, I feel like I pulled dozens of muscles in my body. Didn't even know I had dozens. <laughs> yeah. But um, the, I guess the dilemma is the too much, too little. A lot of us have a hard time finding that happy spot. Yeah, you've definitely got to find a balance. I mean, just with anything, you know, I always talk about moderation in our diets, but I think it definitely goes for exercise as well. You want to do enough, but you can also overdo it. Yeah. And... When you overdo it, I mean, you're you're sitting there in a cardiac unit with as as a dietitian. I mean, the heart is a muscle, right? And mm-hmm. if it's not used, if it's not strengthened, if it's not taken care of, 
it'll create problems. But if it's overused, it can also create problems. Yeah, it can. I mean, exercise is very important for all of our muscles and especially our heart, which is probably one of the most important muscles in our body. And exercise is one of the best ways that we can keep it strong and healthy, but overdoing it can actually cause some negative effects. And some studies have even shown that, you know, especially in like endurance athletes, people who are training for marathons and triathlons all the time, there actually can be some changes within the heart that can cause arrhythmias, which is just kind of a, an unnatural heartbeat, either too fast or too slow, which can lead to heart problems. Hmm. Now, there's a lot of myths about exercise. Let's start blowing some of them up. Yeah. What are some of the myths that you think just the average citizens we need to pay attention to? Um, I think just the fact that you can't exercise too hard is a big one. You know, people are always saying, push yourself to the limit and, you know, just the harder you work out, the better. And you definitely do want to push your, push yourself and get your heart rate up. You don't want to be, you know, just kind of walking along leisurely and counting it as exercise always. But uh, you can definitely do work out not only too often, but too hard as well when you're working out. You need to be in tune with your body, making sure that, you know, you're not pushing it too hard. And then, like, I don't know if you've heard this. The term rest days before, but those are very important. And sometimes people think, you know, you got to work out every day of the week um, in order to be consistent. But rest days and taking a break are, are important for your body. So we don't. So I guess one of the myths is we don't need to exercise every day. We don't, no. Um, I mean, there's no set recommendation for exactly how many days a week to work out. It's more based on how many hours or how many minutes a week. But on average, um, you know, five days a week, maybe six days a week. But you definitely need to take at least one or two rest days a week for your body to just recover and the stress put on your body. And also just because people get burnt out. You know, if you're trying to work out every single day, seven days a week, that's probably for most people not going to last very long before they're burnt out. (laughs) So true. So true. Is um, So we, we don't necessarily need to do it every day, but you, you said it's more about time, how much time we're spending. Is there an amount of time generally per day we should spend? Does it need to be an hour? Is it a half hour? Um, so the recommendation kind of is that at least you need to do it within 10-minute increments. So you need to do more than 10 minutes a day. But as long as you're doing it for 10 minutes at a time, you can do it several times per day. Um, generally, so the recommendation from the CDC, which is the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, which kind of put out these type of recommendations, their recommendation is at least 150 minutes a week, and that equals two and a half hours. So that would come out to about 30 minutes a day, five days a week. Hmm. And that's, I guess, I mean, this is, there's one thing that's exercise, you know, you get the spandex on, mm-hmm. I put my headband, my wristbands, my leg warmers, I get it all on, and then I go work out. Right. Then it, that seems different than physical activity. Yeah, and they are different. You don't need to have all of your exercise. You definitely do need to incorporate some of that more heavy, um, intense exercise for some of the benefits. You do want to get your heart rate up, but not all of your exercise has to be running or lifting weights. It can be things, they, they did a study um, actually that showed that more exercise is better and they they recommended like two hours a day which seems like a lot but Mm. they were saying that not all of that has to be actually at the gym or outside running that can include you know just walking or biking to the store or gardening or doing housework so all of those those things that get kind of get your heart rate moving a little bit and get you moving around can be incorporated or included in your your Mm. physical activity is uh, I mean that's part of it too just you have to walk into your building right you have to you're walking constantly Mm -hmm. I guess part of the game and this is the greatest benefit of having one of these Fitbits or 
uh, a higher tech watch is it tells you how if you're standing enough. It right, tells me yeah. when I'm too sedentary. Mm-hmm. Uh, it should just say, "Hey, Tubby, move it." <laughs> yeah. But instead, it just says, "Hey, better stand." Exactly. It's, it just yeah. kindly and, motivates you. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of you know. I think the little things definitely add up. I always encourage my patients to take the stairs or you know park far away. Um, just little things that are giving you a little bit extra because they really do add up. Um, trying to stand, like they even have standing desks for mm-hmm. some people now that I think can be really helpful. And and making sure if you are at a desk job where you're sitting a lot, um, that you're getting up about every hour and just kind of going for a quick little walk to to get your heart rate up and, you know, just get moving around a little bit. So if you're moving two hours a day, um, that's probably help. I mean, just cleaning your house. Think about yeah. that. Mm-hmm. It's, exactly. It's, it's just staying mobile, right? Yeah, exactly. Just taking care of things around the yard and the house and, and just making sure that you're moving and not just sitting on the couch or laying in bed. Does it need to be cardiovascular? Like, Because I'm sitting here thinking, um, lifting weights, for example, mm-hmm. uh, I don't lift many weights, yeah. but I have years ago. Uh-huh. I don't think it still matters. <laughs> but if we're lifting weights, um, th- that's exercise. And I guess that's healthy. That's good for us. But yeah. not necessarily going to work our heart out not incredibly. As, not as much necessarily. So the the cardiovascular or you know the exercise where you're really um, moving, running, biking, elliptical, different things like that. That's where you're going to get more benefit for your heart and strengthening your heart muscle, just because it has to beat harder and it's you know it's exercising that muscle essentially. Um, the muscle, as in strength training and weightlifting, that is important as well. And the CDC, like I mentioned before, that they recommend at least half an hour, five days a week. They actually recommend that you do muscle and strength training at least twice a week as well, because that's really important just for improving your, it can increase your lean body mass, which helps with your metabolism, which helps with weight control. So there's a lot of good positive benefits from that as well. So you need to make sure you're doing both kinds of exercises because they're both important in different ways. Mm. Um, when you, when I, do I need a trainer? So I, I do these television segments and this year they want me to get a trainer. Well, mm-hmm. it was my idea. Okay. I'm going to get a trainer for 90 days mm-hmm. and I guess they're going to follow me okay. while I pull my muscles and embarrass uh-huh. myself. What, uh, do I need a trainer to get healthy? I mean, you would say, I know you'll say no, right. but a lot of us don't know what we're doing. Yeah, I think that's very true, and that's actually something I was kind of thinking about as I was kind of getting ready to to talk to you about this is um, it's just kind of different for everybody, and even I I feel like I work out pretty regularly and consistently, but I sometimes feel a little bit lost at the gym and things. I think it just kind of depends on what works for you. They have a lot of different – trainers can be really helpful. If you you have the ability and the money and everything, they're a great option. They can kind of teach you how to be comfortable at the gym and give you ideas of what exercises to do and what you need to be doing, but if that's not an option, and it's not for a lot of people – um, for different reasons, then you don't need a trainer. I mean, there are a lot of things you can find just online now, training programs. There are programs that you can buy for pretty cheap um, that kind of will give you a little bit more structure as far as what to do at home or at the gym. Um, so, you know, there's workout videos and classes. So there's a lot of different options out there other than just training. Oh, yeah. Trainer. I'm telling you, YouTube so I play tennis, and I thought I knew tennis, and then I went and watched YouTube, and I found out I'm doing it all wrong. <laughs> yeah, that's, 
<laughs> you can learn pretty much anything on YouTube now. That's so. pretty cool. So um, your basic recommendation so far is about 30 minutes of uh, exercise a day, five days a week. Yeah. But so, moderation is the idea. And, exactly. and I guess if, if you're really hurting or you can't breathe, uh-huh. back it down. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, you want to push yourself and, you know, you don't want to give up just because it's hard, obviously. But if you're to the point where you're feeling pain or lightheaded or, you know, that's something that you don't want to push through, you definitely want to be listening to your body and making sure that you're paying attention to those signals that maybe you're straining it a little bit too much. Hmm. Great insight. Again, we are speaking with Andrea Ovard. Um, She is a registered dietitian. Go to her website, thebakingdietitian.com. Wonderful insights there. Plus, you can find out about her cake business as well. I've decided I'm ordering a cake, and I'm going to eat it. I'm going to order an exercising cake and eat it while I'm exercising. Great stuff. We'll take a break. Come back. Continue the discussion about the healthy amount of exercise. Stick with us. Touchdown every morning. Ten times, not just now and then. Give that chicken fat back to the chicken and don't be chicken again. Call me no, fat. don't be chicken I love this again. song. Chicken fat. <laughs> oh, this brings back memories, Jeffrey. Push up. Everybody, ten times. We would we would do this every time we were going to Disneyland. We'd wake up, put on this song, do some quick exercise. Would you really? And then go to Disneyland. We when this song was playing in elementary school, you hit the deck. Everyone starts doing their push-ups ten times. Oh, the joy of exercise! And who better to walk us through it than Andrea Ovard? Andrea is our uh, resident nutritionist. She's she's trying to make us healthier. And today we're discussing with her about uh, exercise. Can you can you over-exercise? Andrea, thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, definitely. And go check out her website, thebakingdietitian.com. You will definitely salivate. <laughs> I hope so. There's some great... Uh, you, you're taking some good pictures of some awesome food there. Yeah, it's been fun. So 30 minutes a day, but if we could, two minutes of... or two hours or so of physical activity, just moving, walking, breathing... Right. You know, get, get going down to get some cronuts. <laughs> yeah. Fun stuff like at that. you're walking to them. <laughs> That's right. Is, uh, but then I look at all these other people. In fact, I almost hit one with my car yesterday accidentally. As I was driving by a gym, um, a guy came out of the gym and then just ran right into the road to start his workout. But the gym rat mentality, is there – there's a point, right, where you just need to – do something other than work out. That is true. And they're actually um, recently as they've, this has kind of become more of a problem in our culture. And I, I don't think, you know, going to the gym often and working out hard is a bad thing, but it can get to the point where it's too much. And they've actually just created a new diagnosis called exercise addiction, which is sort of in the same realm with eating disorders where it's it's almost an obsession with exercise. And, you know, you can't live a normal, regular life because you're so exercise is so important to you and you almost plan your life around exercise and you're pushing it too hard and a lot of times can lead to injuries and burnout and different things like that. Huh. Uh, yeah, I guess that's 
you could become addicted to it because you get a chemical high doing it. Right, yeah. And I mean, definitely, you know, that's one of the benefits of exercise is that it can help with depression, help improve your mood, and and that's a good thing. Um, But sometimes you can, yeah, if you become too dependent on just that, for, you know, making you feel better, then that's, that can become a problem. Don't you think, if, if we're going to be honest here, Andrea, that um, some of this is really from the devil? Like, for example, um, a plank. Mm-hmm. Who invented a plank other than the dark side? It, it can be a pretty horrible thing sometimes, I agree. I've done many planks in my day, and I kind of had that same thought as I'm doing them. Like, why are we doing this? Yeah. It's horrible. Um, are there also, I guess, and one of the things on your website, thebakingdietitian.com, you have an entire section there for workouts, mm-hmm. ideas about workouts. What if So if I'm about to go in and, and have a workout, I see all these people drinking these protein shakes mm-hmm. and these protein drinks. But if you're drinking a protein drink or shake without a workout, aren't you just gaining fat or calories, I mean? Yeah, usually. I mean, you definitely need to be, you know, using that those calories to burn them off. If you're just adding extra protein shakes and things like that, and if you're using it as, you know, kind of like a meal repra- replacement for breakfast or something, then that's okay. But if you're going to be drinking a lot of protein shakes, eating protein bars, you need to be working that off as well because those calories—they're usually those things are usually really high in calories um, because it's supposed to be supporting a workout. But if you're not actually doing the workout, then you're just gaining a lot of calories and probably gaining weight. Uh, what what is a good workout meal? Like if I have to, do I want to eat before I go workout? Do I do I want to go hungry? How yeah, how, what, so, what, how do I do that? So usually it's it's better to eat before a workout if that's an option. Sometimes people work out. Sometimes I work out really early in the morning and I just can't get anything down before I go. But I notice that I'm usually more tired when I do that. So eating something before you go work out is a good idea. And actually your pre-workout meal, you want to focus more on carbs and less on protein um, as opposed to a post-workout, you want to focus a little bit more on protein and less on carbs because carbs is kind of what gives us our energy. So having kind of a mixed meal of maybe like a, a good one for me, like when I've done races and stuff in the past, like half marathons and things, is, you know, just a piece of toast, whole wheat toast with a little bit of peanut butter and half a banana. And that's a good combination of carbs, protein, fat. To, and you, you want to keep it pretty light. You don't want to be weighed down, obviously. And you want to eat it probably at least like 30 minutes before your workout. Oh. You're not eating right as you're walking into the gym. Or Yeah, because I, I don't recommend like lasagna, a big lasagna <laughs> meal before you do. A great pre-workout meal. <laughs> <laughs> but the carbs, that's an interesting idea because you need the energy. And um, just the other day, I was feeling really down and exhausted. And I then realized I hadn't eaten. Yeah. For eight hours. Mm-hmm. Had a little food, changed my entire mood. Exactly. You're probably a little bit hangry. Hangry's that the word. to me. <laughs> yeah. When I, um, so that's what we would eat before and then after you're saying more protein. Yeah. Um, so that's when your muscles are recovering and you want to try to eat within 15 minutes to half an hour after a workout. And that's when a protein shake, or it doesn't have to be any, you know, any kind of specific protein product, but just something with some protein in it. Um, again, some peanut butter and an apple or, you know, a handful of trail mix or something like that, um, that has some protein to help rebuild your muscles and then also having a little bit of carb as well to replenish the the energy that you've used. And tell me what's happening as I'm playing tennis, for example, with my family 
it's fun. I love it. It's a great mm-hmm. game. But after and for days, my body aches. Um, and I mean, it used to. Now I'm getting it's better. Uh-huh. Um, but what what was happening to my body? Well, so you're straining those muscles and, you know, using them in different ways than you're maybe used to. And so it just causes stress on those muscles that tends them or makes them tend to be sore for a couple of days. And then if you, you know, like you said, if you notice if you're doing exercise consistently, you usually are a little bit less sore. And in some ways that soreness is a good thing because it shows you that you're working new muscles and you're making progress. Your muscles are doing things that they're not used to doing, but, um, you know, so there's kind of a happy balance there. But the more that you use them, the more that you get used to working out, the the better it will be. You won't be quite as sore usually. Is I, I guess that's what you were saying earlier that you let your body tell you what's going on. Your body mm-hmm. will tell you when you need to slow down. So really, we we are partners. This sounds so weird, but we are partnering with our bodies, right? So yeah. my mind, my thinking, my head, my spirit is trying to partner with my body to make mm-hmm. it through this. But you need to pay attention to the signs of your body. What are some of the signs we need to make sure we are watching for? Um, Like I kind of said before, lightheadedness is one. If you're feeling really lightheaded, that's not a good thing. Um, If you're feeling any kind of pain other than, I mean, you're going to be tired, obviously, if you're, you know, running or lifting weights, it's going to be a strenuous thing. But if it's actually painful to the point where it hurts, um, then that's, those are kind of things that you need to look for is just, you know, anything that feels off or feels like not just difficult, but just actually feels wrong or painful or, you know, is, is hurting. And if you wake up in the morning or, you know, you're about to go head out to work out and you're just feeling, some people will try to work out through being sick or, you know, sometimes if you're on the verge of sickness and you push yourself too hard and keep working out, that can actually make it worse than if you just gave yourself a couple days to rest. So anytime that you're starting to feel just a little bit of sickness coming on, it's probably a good idea to take a rest day for a couple days. Hmm. It just is common sense, isn't it? This is just basic common sense. It seems like it should be, but I think sometimes we just get in this mentality that, you know, we got to just push through it because that's kind of the society we live in today is just always keep pushing and and that can backfire on us sometimes. And a little other advice from you um, as an expert here. So it seems like what we do is we we get this idea that we're going to work out. Um, we get this idea of what we look like when we're working out. Like mm-hmm. we think, we think we look like you know this ripped superstar. Yeah. And then um, we go look in the mirror after, and we just look like blah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How do you keep your head in this workout game? Right. I so, think you know. Yeah, I think just focusing on, again, on our bodies and just how you feel, how it makes you feel. I've read a lot of books on, um, you know, body image and things like that. And and more just focusing, instead of focusing on the scale and am I losing weight and what do I look like, just focusing on what our bodies can do. I mean, our bodies are pretty amazing and the fact that, you know, we have bodies, most of us that work, you know, and let us hike and rock climb and do all these fun things, just focusing on how we feel and the ability that our bodies have to actually do all of these amazing things, focusing on that as opposed to just how are we looking and, you know, it, you know that is that is an important part of it and, you know, you want to be healthy and lose weight and things like that, but more just focusing on, on how exercise makes us feel and doing it as, you know, an appreciation of our body as opposed to a punishment for overeating or not looking like we feel like we should. Mm. The uh, Really, what if we just got really good at how we feel? Exactly. I think that would solve a lot of problems. And it seems like, too, our bodies, you're wired to do that. It's mm-hmm. just so subtle 
we don't we'd rather listen to the commercial telling us how we feel versus what our spirit or our mind is telling us. Yeah, and I think a lot of the problem comes um, from, you know, just comparing ourselves with others. And and that can be hard, especially with social media right now. I mean, I run an Instagram and Twitter account for, for my baking dietitian stuff, and I, I tend to get caught in that, you know, comparing myself with what others are doing or looking like. And, and, I, and one of my favorite quotes is, comparison is the thief of joy. And I think, you know, we have to focus on being better than ourselves every day, not better than somebody else, and not really comparing ourselves to what others are doing or looking like. Yeah. Oh, that's great advice. Okay, um, one more question, and we'll let you go. Yeah. Uh, so if you were going to tell us the one thing to remember, mm-hmm. and maybe you already have told us, okay. if there's one thing we take away to make sure we're getting a healthy amount of exercise, not too much, mm-hmm. not too little, mm-hmm. what what's the one thing? I think the biggest thing, and this may sound silly and so simple, but it's just to have fun because if you're doing exercise that you hate, if you hate running and you're trying to run, you're it's not going to last <laughs> right. and you're not going to do it very long. Um, so finding things that you like, whether it's hiking or doing kickboxing classes or yoga or, you know, running with your dog or whatever. I, I heard a quote that said, or uh, from a study I think that I read, that said that the two things that stop people from losing weight and exercise are boredom or injury. And, and I think if you're doing things that you don't like that are boring you or that are, you know, just not fun to you, that's going to be the biggest problem. So you need to, the best exercise is the one that you'll do, you know. So whatever whatever you like, just try out different things and find something that you enjoy and, and incorporate that into your life every day. Love it. Awesome advice. Her name's Andrea Ovard. The website, thebakingdietitian.com. Go check it out. It's got workouts, recipes, everything you need. Plus, you can follow some links there and find uh, that uh, Andrea's got her own little baking site as well. Fun stuff. We'll come back to a little Coach's Corner. To the Matt Townsend show. Little Slim Whitman. Uh, this is called the Indian Call. What's it called? The Indian, Indian Love, Love Call. And I don't know what it is, but you, there you could hear it uh, moving away um, a, a pack of bears, polar bears. Yeah, we did have about five people in the studio, and now it's just yeah, you and me. Cleaned it right out. Fantastic. Hey, um, we we've got a lot to talk about this this uh, our discussion with Andrea Ovard and the baking dietitian. It's an important discussion, and I'm going to get very personal with you. This week was it this week? Yeah, Tuesday. Well, I don't know. Sometime this week, I went in and had an endoscopy done, where they put you to sleep for 20 minutes, and they then stuff a camera down your throat. Sounds great. It's fantastic. By the way, the sleeping part, incredible. The camera part, don't remember. However, I realized that uh, you could be doing something and not even know the impact it's having on you on the inside until they stick a camera down you and say, oh, you must, you must have a lot of ibuprofen every day. Is Donald Trump uh, volunteering to do this? No. No. I hope not because I don't want to see the video. So I I beg you to start to tune in to your body. I have known that uh, 
taking ibuprofen was hurt, hurting me. It just I mean, it just I thought it was helping me, but I was taking it because I get sinus infections, and then I'd get just headaches. So wouldn't it make more sense to go deal with the sinus infection instead of just medicating with ibuprofen? The ibuprofen then ruins the lining of your stomach. It's a system. And I can get rid of the system by stopping overuse of NSAIDs, S-A-I, you know, ibuprofen, painkillers. So why I bring it up is there's just little things in life, little tiny things that your body is telling you right now. It's telling you if you're constantly tired, it's telling you you need to maybe watch your diet. You need to get more sleep. Just tune in. So in your head right this second, will you be thinking, what is your body telling you you need to do more of? And for heaven's sakes, will you go do it? Do it. Just do it. Then you can catch it early. So I can catch my problem before I have an ulcer. Isn't that great? So I feel blessed and lucky that I caught it early. Um, and I just want to pass that wisdom on to you. The baking dietitian taught us, pay attention to your body. And right now in your head, think of that one thing and just work on that one thing for the next month. A little coaching moment for you. Now, we've got to get to a story we promised to bring you about a bride and a groom and their wedding coinciding with a llama convention. I mean, if you just are spending ten, twenty thousand dollars on your wedding, and you found out uh, a couple days before, oh yeah, oh you're you're having your wedding the day of the llama convention, the week of the llama convention, would you not be frustrated? Well, uh, these two people they crashed the party and they created a really powerful moment. Th- this is the quote. From Alexis Kluger, we crashed the llama party. The llamas did not crash our party, Alexis Kluger said, um, about uh, the surprise animal encounter back at the hotel after their big day. They were all totally into it. They were like, come hang out with us. We all decided to go play with the llamas because they had music going all night and they were partying all night long with the llamas. So this bridal party decided to combine the party with the llamas. The llama people, I, I, don't know, you, I don't know you call them llama people, the llama owners. That's not politically correct. It doesn't sound politically correct. The llama, the llama people. As uh, fate would have it, there was a llama convention happening at the hotel in Flat Rock, North Carolina. The couple didn't know about the event coinciding with their most magical day of their lives until they called the hotel to try to block off more rooms for their guests, but to no avail – We had a big wedding afterward, and we all went back to the hotel. Someone came in and said, hey, there's llamas outside. So we went out to the lobby. There were a ton of people and uh, eight llamas in the lobby. Sounds like a party. That's great that they were able to get over this initial bump in their plans and just really hit it off. Because this could have caused a huge division, and it didn't. Didn't cause a division. So this is the point and the reason we wanted to tell you the story because it instead it created something that neither of them expected and it was magical and it was powerful and it was a unification. It was a wedding llama fest 
Two people, two groups never anticipated it, and it happened. And we at the Matt Townsend Show want to make sure all of us get this message. Here's a PSA, a public service announcement produced by one of our great reporters, Ron Brokaw. We at the Matt Townsend Show would like to bring you this important message of brotherhood, or rather, llamahood. We need not be annoyed with or live in fear of the oft-misunderstood llama. Sure, they may spit, kick, and even neck wrestle from time to time, but who among us hasn't? Llamas are actually quite social and friendly. Just ask Alexis Kluger, who shared a hotel banquet hall with a llama convention on the day of her wedding, even though she didn't know about the event coinciding with the most magical day of her life. And now, what started as a chance encounter has turned into a lifelong friendship. Sure, the llama may remind you of a college roommate, but with a little understanding, he could very well become a soulmate. So please, when you come in contact with a llama, don't stir up any llama drama. Instead, get to know him, maybe by sharing a meal at Chakarama, introducing him to your mama, taking him on a trip to the Bahamas, or even going shopping for Obama pajamas. You'll be glad you did. A message from llama lovers across America.